Illinois has proven to be fertile ground for the Green Party, and there's no greater evidence of this than Illinois' 12th congressional district, a place where candidates have done pretty well over the past few election cycles. Randy Oksher is hoping to continue that momentum, and he's part of a highly competitive race that's captured national attention. Oksher joins us next on the Politically Speaking podcast to talk about his beliefs and platform and how he stacks up with Republican Mike Bost and Democrat Brendan Kelly. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufu's Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufu's Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I'm flying solo today, and we are thrilled to welcome our guest today, Randy Oksher. And uh, I'm a candidate for U.S. Congress in the 12th District in Illinois. The Green Party candidate. That is correct. You are the first member of the Green Party we've ever had on this show. We, uh, we interviewed, so? Yeah, we interviewed a Libertarian candidate for St. Louis County Executive this cycle, but you are breaking new ground today. So all I right, wanted, great. And, and I, I'm glad that we're doing this because you drove all the way from Carbondale to I come did. here, yeah. which, which I'm really happy <laughs> about because I, I, I think that it's always better to talk in the studio rather than... Uh, over the phone, but it is it is a sacrifice for, to drive two hours to to get here. So well, it's 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 also not all that carbon wise. But I've been a DJ at WDBX down in Carbondale for 17 years and have done many many interviews. And I know that they go better when you can look a person in the eye. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, how you play into this race, because I sure. think everybody agrees you are a factor, which mm-hmm. is the reason we're interviewing you. But we're not going to just spend 30 minutes saying, how are you going to factor into this race? Mm-hmm. We're also going to ask you about your positions on okay. issues. But before we do that, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do professionally, and kind of your history in the Illinois Green Party. Sure. Uh, well, I'm a professor of philosophy and communication studies at SIU Carbondale. Uh, pretty much my entire adult life has been uh, higher education. I did quit uh, school for a couple of years and play bass in a rock and roll band. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was way do back you, do you in still the play, 80s. Do you oh, still yes, play I do. Bass? Yes, I do. <laughs> so who's yeah. your favorite bass player, by the way? Well, the the one the one that that I most wish I could play like would have been Chris Squire, of Yes, uh, the late Chris Squire. Uh, I I think he's the best bass player I ever heard, rock and roll bass player. My, my favorite is John Entwistle. Oh, okay. Well, he's he was fantastic he, too. He, he uh, rest in peace to him as yes, well. Yes, as well. Yeah, I'm I'm afraid the rock and roll life doesn't necessarily lead to uh, longevity, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, but. Um, uh, uh, Esperanza Spalding has got to be the greatest bass player who's alive yeah. right now. And, of course, she can play anything. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that's my favorite bass player now. So, I, from reading your bio, uh, beyond just uh, working at SIU 
Carbondale. Mm. You, you've been involved with Green Party politics in Jackson County since like 2000 or That's maybe correct. even before. Yeah. I, uh, so I moved to uh, Illinois with my spouse in 2000. I uh, was very lucky to get that job in Carbondale. It was always my dream job. Uh, and uh, we came from Oklahoma where we had been for eight years prior Which to Which part that. of Oklahoma? Oklahoma City. My, my great my great grandmother and great grandfather moved to Ponca City. Oh yes, I've the, been there <laughs> in, in the 1920s and 30s, and my mm-hmm. grandma grew up in Ponca City. So mm-hmm. I am always thrilled to meet somebody yeah. who lived in Oklahoma. Conoco, 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 Conoco's in Ponca City. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and my my great grandfather owned a clothing store there, and he dressed all the Conoco executives. He went from mm-hmm. being a penniless Polish immigrant mm-hmm. to being able to buy <laughs> lots of land mm-hmm. because those they, Conoco they got... executives needed nice clothes. Yeah, that's 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 great. Uh, um, Oklahoma was not uh, it was not really suited for our temperaments. Both of us grew up in this valley. Um, I'm from Memphis, and uh, my spouse is from Clinton, Kentucky, which is just across the river. And we needed hills and trees. And so, uh, uh, and Oklahoma politics was pretty it was pretty oppressive as well. Um, and so that's one of the reddest of the red states. Uh, and there wasn't an organized Green Party there when we left. Uh, otherwise, I would have joined the Green Party a lot sooner. But the instant we got to Illinois, <laughs> we joined the Green Party. This is 2000. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the Illinois Green Party because, mm-hmm. you know, this is a primarily a Missouri-based political show. And, sure. and the Green let's – be, let's be very honest. The Green Party in Missouri has not made a lot of headway mm-hmm. over the last 15, 20 years. Sometimes they run in state legislative congressional or, or even statewide races. They get between 1% and 2% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Very different situation in Illinois. The high water mark was probably 2006 when Rich Whitney ran for governor. Uh, that was when Rod Blagojevich was running for re-election against Judy Bartopinka. He got 10.4% of the vote, mm-hmm. which probably amounts to what? has to be close to a million votes or something, yeah, something like that? I would think it's, uh, it is close to that. Uh, Rich is my campaign committee chair. Uh, this uh, this go-round, he's also running for Jackson County Board. Uh, Rich got over 25% of the vote in Jackson County, where I come from, and uh, the Greens are particularly strong there. Um, but there are, there are strong chapters of the Green Party throughout the state of Illinois. Generally speaking, apart from California and Maine, Illinois usually is about the third most important state Green Party organization. The National Green Party is a confederation of state Green Parties, and with regard to that um, uh, that configuration, Illinois is quite influential. And why is that? I mean, I, I'm from Illinois. Mm-hmm. I'm from suburban Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a super conservative state. Even no. the, even the Republicans, mm-hmm. like Bruce Rauner, I've mm-hmm. always said this. Bruce Rauner runs for governor in Missouri. Because of his views on abortion and gun control, he gets 5% of the vote statewide. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it does seem like there is a pretty activist streak that goes on not only in Chicago, but in, in more rural parts. Of mm-hmm. Illinois. Explain That's why, true. Explain why the Green Party is, is so strong here compared to other states. Well, the only thing I can say is that – so historically, Illinois has had corruption problems. Uh, and there are a lot more people who, as a result – of the history of corruption in Illinois have become disaffected, I think, with uh, the two-party system. Uh, And it's not just the Greens. The Libertarians do well. Um, And uh, running for governor right now, we have have a Christian conservative party uh, uh, in addition to a libertarian candidate. Uh, There are a lot of folks in, in Illinois who don't trust the government, and I mean state government in particular, but 
so of the people you know who don't trust the government, some are quite conservative, some are quite liberal, uh, and I think that that's fertile ground. If you'll forgive the <laughs> forgive the metaphor, it's fertile ground for the Green Party as well as for other third party efforts. So let's talk about your platform mm-hmm. because I. I have covered this race in 12 and 14 mm-hmm. when Paul Bradshaw was the Green Party nominee. She got mm-hmm. between 5 and 6% of the vote. Mm-hmm. My understanding is um, from watching that race, usually the Republican and Democratic nominees were not super liberal. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't classify Bill Enyard as, no, as no, a liberal. No, no, he's quite conservative. And, I, sure. and Jason Plummer and Mike Boss, not mm-hmm. even close no, to— No, no, they're to, quite— Quite conservative. Quite conservative. Where do you fit into this race? Tell us a little bit about your political philosophy and your platform. Okay. Well, I mean, I am I am ideologically about as as green as green can get in the sense that our ten key values, including things like nonviolence and feminism, it's not all environment. uh, Our ten key values just simply describe perfectly what you know the views that I've come to over the years. I teach political philosophy. I teach political communication and persuasion. I, I know an awful lot about the history, not only of United States politics, but the history of politics as such, going back to the Western world. Um, and I came to the views that I hold, which are just so much like the, the common sense views of the Green Party, as a result of a tremendous amount of thought and study. Uh, I in The first presidential election that I voted in was 1980, uh, and Carter was running against Reagan. Uh, and I voted for John Anderson. Uh, and so so perhaps I was on, you know, he got 2% of the vote. I was happy about that. He was a relatively conservative Republican, but Carter was an ineffective president, although a wonderful human being, and Reagan scared the bejesus out of me. And so, you know, what was I going to do? I wasn't going to not vote, but I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old at, the, <laughs> at that point, and I feel like I have to do something. And from that day forward, I've been uncomfortable with the two-party system. I, I just want more choices than that. Ranked choice voting would, would change this country for the better, and, and proportional representation even more, but that would, that would re- require some kind of a constitutional change. But just ranked choice voting uh, would make a huge difference because so many people would choose a Green Explain Party. Explain what that candidate. is, by the way. Oh, it just means, you know, so you've got three or four candidates and you just your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, and you just rank them. And so you get a certain amount of uh, uh, a percentage of credit, if you will, toward the office for for being second choice and, and a percentage of credit for being third choice. There are lots of places, for instance, the state of Maine does this. Yeah. Um, and so what that means is that, that, I mean, there are so many people whose second choice would be a Green Party candidate. And there are so many people who worry uh, that if they don't vote for the Democrat or the Republican, they're throwing their vote away. Ranked choice voting is perfectly consistent, not only with our electoral system, uh, but also with our tradition in the sense that there have been, un- until the end of the Second World War, there were third parties all over the place. The GOP was a third party. It wasn't either grand or old at that point, it was, and it wasn't a party either, um, uh, because these, are, these were people, you know, Whigs and conservatives who were not comfortable with one another. But since the Second World War, uh, the Democrats and Republicans really have gotten together to sort of uh, clamp down on the presence of third parties. And so most of the people alive today don't have any memory 
of really active and really, um, you know, ch- the, the, the sort of challenge uh, that a third party candidate uh, would offer. William Jennings Bryan accepted the, the Populist Party's nomination and the Democratic Party's nomination in 1900. Uh, and so the, our, our electoral system used to just be a whole lot more open than it is now. So Green Party, as you mentioned, is kind of associated with environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it might be the name, but it also, when you look at a lot of the candidates, they mm-hmm. have really emphasized environmental sure. issues. Is, is that the case with you as well? And what would you want to do on a federal level that's different now? Obviously, you probably want to do a whole lot different than what President Donald Trump is doing. <laughs> yes, yeah, but be, yeah. be kind of specific on what you would like to see. Well, uh, I've been an environmentalist since the early 90s, about the time the Green Party came into existence. Uh, and the way that happened was just I became aware as a result of uh, the music circles I was running in of uh, clear cutting and some things that were going on. And some buddies of mine went to Redwood Summer uh, to uh, try to prevent the clear cutting of the Redwood Forest at that time. And, uh, uh, and I sort of circula- circulated for the next four or five years around, uh, around the environmental activist movements. Um, from that, I just learned so much about what's going on and how much things like money and corporate power end up affecting our political system. And the more I saw, the more unhappy about it I got. And then I began to become aware, especially after I moved to Illinois, that's not just the environment that is being affected. It's everything in our entire democracy is is being controlled by these same forces. I, it was a long, slow education in how it is that the workings of power are depriving ordinary folks, and I regard myself as one of those. I'm not a politician. I'm a teacher. But they're depriving ordinary folks of any serious voice in the way that things happen. And so um, I was an activist in the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, uh, in Oklahoma. When I got here, the SIU faculty, I here, I'm, I'm sitting in Missouri. When I got to Illinois, the SIU faculty was unionized. I instantly joined. This, to me, was a tremendous step in the direction of autonomy and shared governance for a university to have a faculty like that. And then I got active with the unions after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I've been on the negotiating team for two collective bargaining agreements, and I helped lead a strike in 2011. Uh, and I have to say that that is a very empowering experience. Uh, am I, you know, the union right or wrong? I don't think that unions are necessarily doing for ordinary folks, all the things that they should do. And yeah, I have. And that's a good segue to mm-hmm. my next question. Yeah. Both Kelly and Bost have said that they are pro union uh-huh. for various reasons. They and have I, to in Illinois. Yeah. And well, you, I'm pro union too, but there's a difference. I've been on strike, right. I've negotiated collective bargaining agreements. I'm actually a part uh, and an active part of a union. I don't think they really understand from the inside how unions work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, in Illinois, there's a, there's a tremendous history of, shall we say, cooperation between the unions and both political parties. Uh, not so much the case in Missouri, but uh, that goes that goes very deep in Illinois politics, and it's a deeply ambiguous relationship, in my opinion. Uh, I do think that the public, the, the unions that represent public employees have been much stronger um, uh, in recent years than any of the other unions, most of which have gone into decline in one way or another. But union politics can be pretty frustrating. There's a difference between what you might call the work of the union representing the members and negotiating contracts and union politics. 
Well, Kelly, when we, he was on the show, really emphasized one of his reasons for getting in was kind of his disgust with how money and politics is, is going mm-hmm. on. And I mean, we even talked about kind of the conundrum of people expressing that view and then being dependent on large amounts of outside money from mm-hmm. political parties in order sure. to be competitive. Courtman Ostrin, who's running against Ann Wagner, is kind of going through that same situation where he's talking a lot about, I'm not going to take corporate PAC money, but in order for him to have a, a, a in order for him to be, you know, really competitive against Ann Wagner, he needs that D triple C money, which has mm-hmm. lots of corporate money in it. Mm-hmm. So what what do you make of Kelly's emphasis on that, especially considering you brought up money and politics as one of your driving forces? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, as you may be aware, the Green Party refuses all corporate donations. Uh, we don't we don't accept that at all of any kind. Uh, and so if a PAC had corporate connections, we wouldn't accept the money. Uh, I think, I mean, Brendan has, he's a a sweetheart of a guy, but he has millions of dollars, corporate dollars behind him, both what what the DNC and what he has been able to raise himself for what you might call his campaign proper. And the PAC money is just unbelievable. Bost has even more. Uh, and so when Brendan says he wants to get the money out of politics, I believe that he's, that he's saying what he personally believes. I also believe that he thinks he doesn't have a chance to win without that money. And so he does take it. I mean, he's uh, the blue dogs gave, gave him money. He's really quite conservative um, on a number of issues. Uh, I think that his heart um, is, uh, is expansive and that he's tolerant of disagreement, but personally quite conservative. And that's part of the reason they chose him is I think that they think the 12th district is such a conservative district that only two conservatives <laughs> Could could run against each other, and that's basically what we've got. What what do you? One of the big issues that we talked with both candidates about was the tariff uh, mm-hmm. situation, and it's it's a I don't want to say it's a weird issue for mm-hmm. Illinois twelfth, but it kind of is because mm-hmm. I think that there are parts of the district, like in Granite City, that yeah. probably like it mm-hmm. because the tariffs may end up long term if they remain in place, mm-hmm. driving more domestic steel production to like Granite City Works. Mm-hmm. It, it remains to be seen, but. That's certainly the idea. On the other hand, you know, it's a very agricultural district. You bet. The, the retaliation from China has been pretty, pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on that? I, I, I don't really. I, I obviously know a lot about what the Green Party stands for with environment and mm-hmm. corporate corporate uh, influence. I'd be interested to hear like what your take is on on trade because that's become such a big issue in American politics recently. Yeah. Well, I would say that uh, one of the. Um, I, I mean, he. <laughs> President Trump put Mike Bost in a very difficult position uh, with that because under no circumstances can he come out against the tariff uh, with Granite City and and actually there's a lot of there, there's a lot of heavy manufacturing still in our district especially along the river uh, up here and on the other hand. Uh, Bost is well aware that the retaliation can hurt the agriculture. And so he's, he's you know, between the devil and the deep blue sea on that. I think that the protectionism argument goes way, way back. I do not believe that protecting heavy manufacturing is likely to work in, in terms of our long-term economic future. Um, and I, I think that if we can find 
a way to adapt the heavy manufacturing we have in this district and in this country to the to the things that are going to be built in the future that it's quite possible to save it in particular rail transportation they need steel for that they need good steel it's very expensive to ship that kind of steel from from some, a place like China. If we would get on the ball and start manufacturing trains and train tracks and all of the infrastructure that is associated with with the building of the rail system we're going to have to have in 50 years. We have to have it one way or the other. The fossil fuels were past peak oil. Everybody knows it. The fossil fuels are going to get more and more expensive. It is true that as you know, petroleum technologies and drilling technologies improve, that we might be able to put off the year it's going to happen. But it, eventually, it's not going to be affordable for an ordinary person to buy fossil fuels. And so alternatives have to be there. And I would say in southern Illinois, getting mass transportation from St. Louis down to a place like Carbondale, uh, just light rail, the kind of commuter rail you would get, in, you know, the Long Island Railroad, something like that. We need that kind of that kind of infrastructure, not just in the 12th district, but all over the country. And if we were making those trains and if we were manufacturing the rails, they got to make them somewhere in the 12th district of Illinois is an ideal place for that. We've got the shipping, we've got the we've got the manufacturing. They used to build trains in southern Illinois and now they just now they just maintain them. Uh, but building trains is what we ought to be doing uh, from my point of view and hydrogen trains would be even better than electric and certainly not diesel trains anymore. Yeah. What's your opinion on Donald Trump's foreign policy because one of the other things I'm well aware about the Green Party is during especially the Bush years, they were very much against military interventionalism, mm -hmm. especially the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. they, they kind of had a, a, a weird alliance with like a lot of libertarians yes. where, where libertarians were against military in interventionalism too. It, it's kind of difficult to even describe what Donald Trump's foreign policy philosophy is mm -hmm. right now because it kind of goes all over the place. Mm -hmm. One minute he is talking about like bombing places like crazy the next he's like engaging in diplomacy with North Korea so it's mm -hmm. kind of it's it, I can't even really describe it what what's kind of your view on how the president is doing on that issue given that he kind of fluctuates between being against military interventionalism and then being loudly for it I, I'd be interested in your view on that well sure his uh, his foreign policy reminds me a good bit of Teddy Roosevelt's in fact he reminds me of Teddy Roosevelt in a lot of ways uh, he's the same kind of char divisive character that Teddy Roosevelt was and of course Roosevelt was bellicose and would beat his chest and uh, try to if, if he could intimidate a foreign country of any kind into accepting a military base and you know he sails his great white fleet around uh, around the world and uh, if you didn't want them to land then you know maybe they're going to attack that was uh, and 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 in the United States at that time people were talking about the way they are now regarding our adventurous <laughs> sort of uh, uh, appearance of the military on the other hand he didn't attack anybody um, I, if you look at the pattern of our bombings, um, under Obama, we were bombing pretty much constantly, uh, under Bush certainly. Uh, Trump has actually, I don't think he likes paying for that. And he has actually cut back on the bombing. He'll obviously, he's willing to do it. Like in Syria, for yeah, example. Yeah, for example. And I'm sure that there's also situations in that ISIS zone where American yeah. planes have bombed places. Sure, sure. We're still, we're still bombing, but in terms of the rate of it, um, if you look at how expensive it is, 
you would begin to understand how somebody like Trump, as a you know, as somebody who's never held public office but has run a lot of businesses, looked at the bottom line and say, you know, it's going to cost us eight million dollars to send, you know, to send the B fifty twos just for this one sortie uh, or something like that, and it costs about eight billion to to uh, uh, to build a couple of B twos. He loves the he loves the military equipment and he loves the military show but it's not at all clear to me that he's the most bellicose in action of the presidents we've had i think i mean you know i think you probably have to go back to somebody like carter to find somebody who's more reluctant to use the military but that said we don't know what he's going to do next and i was listening to your 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 station this morning and th- they're interviewing uh, the Chinese about uh, representatives about the trade war, and they said we want to make peace on this trade this trade conflict with the United States, but the trouble is their their policy changes every day, and so we don't know where to start with uh, with with fixing things. I guess that Trump keeps people off balance by being so incredibly inconsistent uh, with what he says and what the rhetoric is and what he's willing to do. Um, and so, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I don't know what he's going to do next. What, what was your opinion on the tax cut bill? Because that probably is the major policy accomplishment that he's done so far. He clearly wanted to do something on, on the Affordable Care Act, and that mm-hmm. hasn't gone anywhere. If the Democrats retake the House, I mm-hmm. don't see any real headway on that issue. No. So, like, what do you think about the, the, the tax cut bill, which is, I think, going to be going into effect in, in full force over the next year or two? Well, so mostly it's moving brackets, but the the, the hidden sort of piece of the tax cut, uh, I mean, my taxes went up as a result of the uh, of the new, and a lot of people between 50 and 64 had their taxes go up, and that's that's my age bracket. That said, those those people are actually the ones who vote. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, uh, those and folks even older um, uh, are the ones who vote, and so it looks like politically that was probably a bad idea. But the thing that's behind the scenes and that's going to cost our country trillions of dollars was the cut in the corporate tax rate, which 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 I think is obscene. Um, it, it essentially they're saying. I mean, Mike Bost would come to back to our district and point out that Walmart is giving uh, its employees bonuses, uh, and I mean, but they won't give their employees a living wage. They won't give their employees full-time work if they have to pay benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But but they'll but they'll hand them a one-time infusion that really comes from. Um, uh, it doesn't come from the tax cut. It comes from anticipation of their costs going down. Uh, and uh, that said, they're just saying thank you to the Republican uh, senators and congressmen who uh, who essentially handed them billions and billions of dollars. Well, they haven't cut spending. So who's going to make – who's really paying for that? Our children and grandchildren perhaps if we ever pay off the national debt. But yeah. Yeah. What? But anyway, so what do I think about it? I think it's obscene. I think that the corporate tax cut is obscene. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the, the issues that was kind of percolating in Democratic politics, and especially Democratic primaries, is this Medicare for all proposal. Mm-hmm. Now, sure. I'm pretty sure Green Party candidates have always been for, you know, single payer health care yep. or for, you know, giving everybody either government-subsidized or government-run health care. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of that debate, and what would be kind of your, your philosophical view on where you would want 
healthcare to go when it's when it's talking about expanding government health care well if elected i would sign on for house resolution 676 which is the one you're talking about uh, there there are a couple of other medicare for all proposals out there but 676 has about 50 democrat uh co-sponsors and i think in terms of just well so here's here's my philosophical bottom line our workforce needs to be healthier <laughs> than it is. In order for us to be competitive with India, with China, um, we need, because there's 1.5 billion Chinese and there's 1.2 billion uh, uh, residents of India, there's only 350 million of us. We're a more productive workforce uh, than they are, but we're not healthy. We would be more productive still if we were healthy. Uh, and in fact, at the lowest end where we need the greatest productivity is where we're the least healthy. In addition to that, we're paying more and getting less than almost every other developed country in terms of our healthcare system. So with that said, you don't have to be some kind of bleeding heart to recognize that this is not competitive, it is not wise. And as China and India try to raise their standard of living for 1.5 billion people or 1.2 billion people, um, it's going to come at the cost of our standard of living in all likelihood because they have so many more people that they can put to work. Now, their workers don't have to be as healthy as ours because they have three or four times as many as we have. And so just think of it in terms of the future of trade and ask whether it's in our interest to take care of the workforce. Uh, and I can't see any sound argument against what I just said. In our interest is to take care of our workforce. Now, how do we do that? Well, do we give a cut of that to the insurance companies? As long as insurance companies are making money off of people's ill health, we're essentially making our health care system a casino where, where, where the, the insurer bets that I'm not going to get sick and I have to bet that I am. This is not how you handle health care wisely or responsibly. Furthermore, I happen to think health care is a human right. So add to the previous argument that. Now, yes, Green Party favors single payer, and so do I. I would vote for Medicare for All as a, as a patch, but it doesn't begin to do what's in, in the interest of this nation economically. We are up against a wall trying to compete economically with, with China and India. And we have to take better care of our fewer people in order to be competitive. So let's talk about the race because mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I I think and I may be a homer here because mm -hmm. I live like you know two miles away from the twelfth congressional district. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the a most competitive congressional districts races in the country mm -hmm. and b one of the most compelling. Mm -hmm. I think Bost and Kelly are are very strong candidates. Yeah, I think they they, are too. they both have uh, very extensive political resumes. You know, Bost you know, has a long history of running in tough contests and pulling mm -hmm. it out. And Kelly is a major political figure in the St. Louis area just by virtue of being St. Clair County state attorney. It's getting really nasty between the two. The it's, ads it's going to get worse, too. The, the ads have mm -hmm. been very sharp. Mm -hmm. And I think that this could be a, a race that's decided by one or two percentage points either way. Obviously, if it's a Democratic mega wave, it could be different. The Green Party in the last three election cycles, when Paula Bradshaw was on the ballot, got between five and six percent of the vote. Mm -hmm. the, the candidates that won in those three years won by more than five or six percent of the mm -hmm. vote. So they weren't really, quote unquote, spoilers mm -hmm. here. 
But the fact that they're getting that large amount of votes means there's a constituency there. You and, bet. and you can't really just say like, oh, these people are on the ballot to, to hurt someone like Kelly or Bill Enyart. There's mm-hmm. actually people that support the Green Party. You so, bet. So how do you think you factor into this race? Because I mean, if you win, obviously that's going to make international news. You bet. But I think that the the, the feeling is you're going to get between you're going to get at least what Paula Bradshaw got or more, mm-hmm. and that's going to be a factor in you the ulti- ultimate outcome. What, what what do you where do you see yourself stacking? Well, up? so um, about nineteen thousand people voted for Paula last time. The, uh, the the rise in in raw numbers has been a sustainable rise every time we run. It's very difficult to become an established party uh, in a congressional district in Illinois. Right at the moment, 12th district is the only one where the Green Party is currently established. We have been established in other districts in the past, but we have these prohibitive ballot access laws in Illinois. But that said, um, we they because of the ballot access laws, we can't skip a cycle. We, we have to push. We have to work. Um, obviously, we don't take ourselves to be either Democrats or Republicans. We're not ex-Democrats. I, I haven't ever really been a Democrat. Uh, and so when, when people talk to me about how I might be taking votes away from a Democrat, one of the things, they had a very powerful uh, and I think wonderful candidate in the primaries, David Beckett, who the DNs, who, who, who his views and mine are hardly distinguishable from one another, but the DNC decided to bury him, and they did. I think probably they thought he couldn't win in this district, but they have conceded the entire left and most of the center, I would say possibly all of the center, to uh, and definitely the whole progressive vote in the district. They just conceded that and assumed that those people will vote Democrat because they're afraid of the Republican. Um, there is there is there are differences between Kelly and Bost, but the differences are are slight compared to the differences between me and the other two of those candidates. And so the one thing that I think is one, I have a chance to win. Here's the reason. Assuming that 19,000 folks continues to vote green, which I believe they will, they have certainly shown uh, a willingness to, about 210,000 people vote in a typical typical, uh, congressional election in this district. That means I need 75,000 votes to win. It's a pretty big jump, though. 55,000 votes on this particular election cycle strikes me as doable. There are several reasons. One is that young people who didn't turn out uh, since Obama (laughs) ran, um, uh, they stayed home uh, last time, and we still increased our numbers. I do not think that either Kelly or Bost appeals to young people at all, and I think that I do. And so getting the message to them is, of course, my first concern. African-American voters have no reason at all to support either one of those candidates. Uh, and I have a strong civil rights background and and uh, and activism in those areas. I believe that if the progressives turn out um, and if young people turn out, that I can actually put on the fifty five thousand necessary for me to win. so under under no circumstances do I concede that I can't win this race. Mm-hmm. So with that said, I'm not I, I I think that the spoiler arguments almost always depend on the following false assumption. First of all, historically, <laughs> we've hardly ever been even accusable of spoiling. 
um, the Nader thing is something every Green Party. But in this race, person, this race, you not. have not been a spoiler, uh-huh. just because the margins have been over five and six percent. Yeah, not not in this district and not historically. But here's the thing: there's always the assumption that somehow the people who would vote, who vote Green, would vote for the Democrat, and I don't think it's true. Um, I think that they split about – in fact, the research shows that they split about 50-50. Well, the, I mean, it's interesting you <clears> mentioned <throat> that. The, the, the aforementioned Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee put out a poll in this race mm-hmm. where they included you and they excluded you. When they included you, you got about, I think, 7 or 8 percent of the vote, and uh, Boss was up by 1 when they excluded you, which really you should not pull this district without the Green Party candidate. No, huh? That, that's, because that's, we're here. That that's kind of silly. <laughs> yeah, Boss is up by two, and and that so Boss is up by two without me. Anyways. Without you, mm-hmm. which, that doesn't surprise me at all because I know the spoiler argument is is it's it's just fear, uh, and I understand why people are afraid that their person might lose, but the assumption that Green Party folks would vote for Democrats if they weren't voting Green. There's no evidence for it. I, I, my, my only other question is, what effect do you think the Illinois governor's race is going to have on a contest like this? Because, and I guess I can say this openly because I don't cover Illinois politics. Mm-hmm. Rauner looks like he is going to lose by a lot to, to Pritzker at this point. Yeah, I Things think so. Things could change. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Pritzker is running in a, a perfect campaign, but he is, Rauner has alienated Democrats <laughs> and a lot of socially conservative Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um how do you think that affects the, the turnout and the outcome in this contest? I know it's a federal race, but, you know, if the person at the top of the ticket goes down in a double-digit defeat, mm-hmm. it's probably not helpful, helpful for, for boss. But I could also see the fact that Trump is not super unpopular in this district, mm-hmm. kind of evening that, that factor out. I'd be interested to hear your take on that. Well, so I don't think Trump is popular in the district at all. And I think that especially um, uh, in as we – move into the uh, the closing um, weeks of the campaign that Bost will probably seek to put some distance between himself and Trump. Remember that when that it's true that Trump got 55, 56 percent of the vote in the 12th district. Uh, on the other hand, Tammy Duckworth carried the district yeah. and she's quite a liberal Democrat. Uh, and that that said, I think that people were voting against Hillary. And so an awful lot of Democrats voted for Trump and a lot of uh, – I mean a lot of folks who simply couldn't bring themselves to uh, – <laughs> Vote for Mark to, Kirk. To, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so – Well, Kirk, had, so Kirk I had a lot of problems. Yeah. Like he made some – and he's my former congressman and uh-huh. I, I feel for him because of what happened with his stroke. He made a lot of very – off-putting statements during mm-hmm. that campaign. And he's kind of suffering from the same problem Rauner has, mm-hmm. where Kirk is not a very conservative Republican. Right. So conservative Republican voters are not super excited about mm-hmm. him. And, I, I, you know, it was just not going to happen for him. Well, the 12th district is amazingly diverse. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it, it shouldn't be a district, I have to be honest with you. I think that the trouble is that what we were talking earlier about the steel and, uh, and the uh, agriculture sides of the uh, of, of the district, and it puts Mike Boston in a no-win situation with regard to the tariff, because you know if he if he speaks out against it, then well, then, then can, the industrial you, part is you can yeah. blame the Illinois yeah. Democrats yeah. for drawing that district. Well, yeah, I know, I know, and it, to me, it's really really strange that they would have drawn it the way they did. I suppose that they were betting 
that they could retain the seat that was lost by Inyart, that they could retain the seat and neutralize a number of quite red counties at the same time, and it didn't work. It backfired. Yes. It just shows that sometimes gerrymandering doesn't work out. Well, thank you so much for coming to do the show here. Sure. Uh, For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people find out more about your campaign, either on social media or your website? Sure. RandyForCongress.org is the uh, campaign website. And uh, all you got to do is uh, type in my name, Randy Oxer or Randall Oxer, and it'll take you to our Facebook page and our other social media and Twitter. Uh, I think it's Randy for So Ill is my uh, Twitter. So Ill. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's funny how that works out. Until next time, so long. Here we go. Here we go, one more time, everybody's feeling fine Here we go now, yes, yes, here we go When sick has got the flow Put your head to the beat, we got everything you need Here we go now, yes, yes, here we go When sick has got the flow Here we go, just one more time And everybody's feeling fine Here we go now, here we go Sponsored by Lou Fuse Alfa Romeo of Metro East.